Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll go to Sarasota to visit the former winter home of the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus, now a cultural center. Bringing the circus here in 1927 changed the entire tenor of what the city is, and we still feel that today. We'll discuss the history of baseball in the Sunshine State, As early as the 1870s, we had these formalized local teams beginning to pop up in Florida. And we'll talk with documentary filmmaker Lisa Mills. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Today, the John and Mabel Ringling Museum of Art Complex in Sarasota includes a 21-gallery museum that surrounds a sculpture garden, the Ringling's unique mansion called Katazan, the Oslo Theater, and the Circus Museum. As leader of the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus, John Ringling became known as the Circus King, but he began his career in 1884 working as a circus clown with five of his brothers. Laura Stiefel-Moore is head of educational programs at the Ringling Museum. I think really early on in the show, the brothers all had to do, you know, it was sort of all hands on deck, and they were really putting the show together themselves. It was a scrappy little show. Their animal uh, offerings were, you know, a dog and, and nothing much more exotic than that. Um, but what we see happening is they really start to um, develop a strong sense of how to manage and administer the circus rather than just be the performers themselves. Uh, There's a a famous quote they would say, we divided the job but we stuck together. Um, And I think that was really the key to their success. Or competitors referred to them as a many-headed hydra. Um, So I think that ability that they each sort of specialized, they had a niche talent. um, And for John it became uh, what's known as the advanced man position. So he would travel out in front of the circus and arrange logistics. So he really had a mind for for logistics, for arranging everything. He had to make sure that he found a site that would be appropriate for the circus. He had to pick a town and the, and the right time when the harvest had just come in or whatever it was so that people had money to spend on the circus. He had to arrange for all the provisions and the food. Um, so really, he, he got to know America really well through that role, um, but he was really uh, instrumental in scheduling the circus and making sure everything fell into place. By 1889, the Ringling Brothers Circus was traveling across the country by train. Eventually, they owned their own caravan with more than 100 rail cars. John Ringling's personal rail car is on display in the Circus Museum. So we have the Wisconsin here at the Ringling, uh, and that was John and Mabel's private rail car, one of a couple that they had. Um, 
and it's the Wisconsin, you know, after the, the brothers who had spent a lot of time in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Um, and it really is just sort of a testament to the life they had achieved for themselves, John and Mabel, at that point. It's incredibly luxurious. Um, and it's, it's beautifully decorated, it's been beautifully restored. Um, so we see them traveling with the circus in, in the height of luxury in probably stark contrast to the performers who were all crowded in. I mean, some of them had you know more ample space, but John and Mabel were really living the high life when they were traveling with the circus. Karen Bell is Outreach Education Manager for the Circus Arts Conservatory. For 30 years, Bell was a featured clown with the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus. She has fond memories of traveling on the company train with performers from around the world. So the Wisconsin, which is the car here on the museum property, is absolutely beautiful. It was the private car of the Ringlings. The inside of it is gorgeous. Uh, wood paneling and fluffy beds and nothing like what I lived in. But there was all sorts of different types of rooms and styles depending on who you were. Because I was a clown, I'm kind of lower in the echelon of the circus world. But the big stars would have large rooms similar to uh, what the Ringlings had. There was one circus star who actually had a grand piano in her train car in her room <laughs> so but the um, most people had what was called a stateroom which was like a nine by six room and then there'd be a hallway and so when there's train runs were happening you could actually go up and down the train and visit people and you know have access to everybody else on the train uh, back in the 40s when there were about a thousand people working for Ringling they had two train cars and the first train car would have all the things that were necessary to get the tent up and moving. So they would have the kitchen, because of course the circus lives on their stomach, uh, all the draft horses and draft animals, the work animals, and the workers. And then they would pack up and leave. And then the second train would have all the performers and the tent. So as the show was on, they would actually be loading the train. And this is the same to today. So when the audience members would leave the tent after a performance, it would just be the big top and nothing else. It would be just like vanished. <laughs> and the next morning, it was all gone. It was like the circus was never there. In 1907, the Ringling Brothers bought the Barnum & Bailey Circus, but they didn't merge operations until the winter of 1918-1919. Jennifer Lemmer Posey is circus curator at the Ringling Museum. The Ringling Brothers were so ambitious, and they watched for an opening to grow their business. So after James Bailey took the Barnum & Bailey Circus to Europe for five years, the brothers had, had grown their routes, and when Bailey came back, he passed away a couple of years later, and the Ringling Brothers bought the show. And, and they did travel those two units separately for a number of years because that meant that much more ground that they could cover. So the Barnum and Bailey title had this uh, weight on the, the eastern seaboard. People knew that title, and that was what they wanted to see when they saw Circus. And out in the Midwest, it was the Ringling Show. And so it was really successful for them to keep the two shows running. but. As the century progressed, you get to the beginnings of World War I, and you also see the death of some of the older Ringling brothers. And so at that point, the, the existing brothers had to, to really evaluate how they could keep the business going and keep their very close handle on, on how it was maintained. They were so hands-on that when they were down to two or three brothers, they needed to combine the shows. And so they did that for the 1919 season. Uh, you see the first combination of this mega circus that opens in Madison Square Gardens. The circus made John Ringling an incredibly wealthy man, but he also had other business interests. Laura Stiefel Moore. Ringling had a lot of interest, he had a lot of irons in the fire. And we, we say that he was probably the most financially successful of all the brothers because he diversified his portfolio, which is you know sound advice. Uh, so he had 
railroads. He was the president of several railroads, and which makes a lot of sense given what he was doing with the circus. He knew the railroads all across America. Uh, he also had some ranches out west in Montana and Oklahoma. And while he was out there, he got into oil drilling as well, had some oil wells. So he's, he's kind of working on all of those projects kind of all at once, you know, so he's never fully devoted to any one at any given time. Uh, and always, of course, running the circus with his brothers. And then it's the, the land boom in Florida of the 1920s where he really realizes that Sarasota is this sort of gem to be developed. And he decides he's going to fashion himself a capitalist, and that was a term that he liked to use to refer to himself rather than a circus impresario um, as the years go by. At that point, he really gets into real estate and, and develops Sarasota. He developed the Keys, um, Longboat, what is today Longboat Keys, St. Armand's, Bird Key, um, and, and really tried to develop the entire town. John and Mabel Ringling were what might be called soulmates today. They married in 1905 and became interested in Sarasota by 1911. In 1926, they completed construction of their ornate mansion called Katazan, or House of John. It was modeled after Venetian palaces. Mabel Ringling was particularly involved in the design of the spectacular home. Jennifer Lemmer Posey. The Katazan is actually listed on the blueprint documents as the residence of Mrs. John Ringling. So we see very much how invested Mabel was in creating a home for herself and, and her husband. She was actively involved in speaking with the architect Dwight James Baum about palazzos she'd seen in Venice and, and these other ideas that would help create this amazing uh, mansion here on Sarasota Bay. It, echoes historic references of Venetian architecture, but there are many personal touches. A lot of the murals and the artwork that you see within the house really speak to Mabel's personality and, and her love of entertaining. There are wonderful grand spaces to invite people into. Laura Stiefel Moore. It would be great to go back and, and have a party with John and Mabel in the 1920s at the Katazan, absolutely. Uh, you, you can read newspaper reports from, from the late 20s uh, some accounts say, you know, there's a party of 300. I've read up to 475 people would be at any kind of given party. They had a beautiful organ installed in the house so they could have concerts with, with the organ. Of course, they would hire live musicians as well. There would be dancing. There's a beautiful ballroom in that space. And they've got a huge marble terrace outside right on the water. So it could really accommodate a lot of people. Um, so they would have the big parties, the lavish parties. Um, and then maybe some more casual daytime affairs. Mabel loved bridge, so she would have bridge tournaments and luncheons um, for her, her circle of women friends. Um, and then just entertaining on a small scale, if you were lucky enough to be a guest at the house, they had a 125-foot yacht, so you could go out cruising on the bay. Um, John might take you over to look at some of his real estate that he was uh, developing. Uh, they had clay tennis courts. You know, you could, there was beachfront along the way so you could swim. They had a, a saltwater swimming pool. Uh, so really there was no shortage of, of entertainment and things to do at the Katazan. The year after Katazan was built, John Ringling made Sarasota the official winter home of the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus. Bringing the circus here in 1927 changed the entire tenor of what the city is, and we still feel that today. Because not only did it turn Sarasota into even more of a tourist destination than it had already been, but we have circus families now who would come down for winter quarters but then put roots down here. So there's no shortage of, of circus performers still today from these families who had worked in the Ringling Brothers. 
um, Barnum and Bailey Circus. And so that legacy of circus is very much alive. But I think too, you still can drive down some roads and see all of these motels that had to spring up because all of a sudden we'd have thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming over the winter to come to winter quarters of the circus and experience this major tourist destination. So I think from that very early period, Sarasota is already sort of navigating how do we accommodate these tourists? What does it mean to be a tourist friendly town? Um, so in, in both of those senses, I think it really impacted the city as it is today. The Ringling's wealth allowed them to indulge their love of travel and collecting art. Laura Stiefel Moore. John had dabbled in art collecting um, from basically the turn of the century, about 1910, 1915. He starts making art purchases, but without any real direction or purpose. Um, and it's not till 1925 that he decides he's going to build an art museum right here uh, on the property where the museum still is today and where they were living. So he sets his mind to this massive undertaking and within six years he had acquired basically the bulk of, of the collection that we have today. Uh, right away he engages an architect to, to build uh, to work on designs and he's able to you know through his travels he's going to Europe very frequently to look for new circus acts but while he's there he's also able to purchase a lot of, of artwork and ship it back to, to America. He and Mabel also frequented auctions especially in New York um, but in, in the Northeast. A lot of the Gilded Age mansions that had been um, you know prominent several decades earlier were being torn down to make way for commercial buildings and skyscrapers and all of the contents of those buildings were being sold at auction. So he gets a lot of fine art that way as well but also furnishings for the Katazan, um, beautiful furniture, tapestries and things like that. When John Ringling died in 1936, he left his museum and all of its contents to the state of Florida. In 2017, the Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus ceased operation, but Ringling's legacy lives on in a variety of ways. After three decades as a professional clown, Karen Bell is now Outreach Education Manager for the Circus Arts Conservatory. The Circus Arts Conservatory is pretty much an umbrella of different programs. We have our Circus Sarasota performances in the winter. We have our Sailor Circus Academy, which is our after-school youth program. We have our humor therapy program, which works with seniors in skilled nursing facilities, and our education program, where we teach youth about physics through the eyes of the circus. The John and Mabel Ringling Museum of Art Complex in Sarasota includes a 21-gallery museum, the Katazan Mansion, the Oslo Theater, and the Circus Museum. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to shop for great books on Florida history and culture, watch archived editions of our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, baseball has a long and storied history in Florida. 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. In the 1850s, in larger cities, especially New York, baseball was becoming the craze. It was really during this time period that the nickname America's Pastime was actually coined and associated with baseball. Everybody wanted to play baseball. And a big part of that was the low cost of entry. Essentially, you just needed a stick and a ball, a large open field, and a bunch of people, and you could play the game of baseball. So these small teams began popping up really all over the country, and Florida was no different. In fact, as early as the 1870s, we had these formalized local teams beginning to pop up in Florida. In 1878, Tampa had their first team. In 1876, Jacksonville actually had their first team. And they really were more of a sort of gentlemen's club. So it's not the Major League Baseball that you would think of today. These folks kind of got together. It was a leisurely kind of pastime that they would play on Saturdays or maybe after a hard day's work, you know, in the evening, you'd get together and play a game of baseball. But these teams then became a little bit better, and the rules were more defined, and the teams started playing each other. So you started to see, at least in Florida, these kind of regional rivalries where the team from Tampa might compete against the team from Plant City. Jacksonville uh, had this longstanding rivalry with Fernandina going back and forth into the 1890s. And really at the turn of the 20th century, you started to see more of a formalized effort to develop not necessarily professional players, but at least semi-professional players in Florida. In 1919, the Florida State League was formed, which was a lower-tiered, semi-professional league, but it was actually a feeder to the Major League Baseball teams in other places throughout the country. And some of the names, I think, were very clever at the time. They included the Bartow Polkers, or the Bradenton Growers, and the Lakeland Highlanders, the Orlando Caps, and one of my favorites is the Sanford Celery Feds, paralleling this growth in, in the popularity, at least, of baseball and the growth of teams in Florida, is also popularity among African-American players. Now, in Florida at this time period, after the end of Reconstruction in the 1870s, it was segregated both on and off the field. So you could come and watch a game, but there was segregated seating, and black and white players were not playing together. So African-Americans began forming their own teams. And just as white players were getting together in these kind of small regional rivalries, the African-Americans were doing the same thing. One of the largest teams was the Jacksonville Redcaps in Jacksonville. Orlando had their own team, Tampa, Miami, and they competed in what became known as the Negro League throughout the country. So they were, again, very famous, very popular players that came from Florida and sort of came up through the grassroots channel, but they were excluded from playing with white players for most of the 20th century. Now, during this time, Florida became a popular tourist destination and baseball teams started coming here for spring training. Yeah, that's right. Very early on, early as 1889, the Washington Nationals actually came down for at least a couple of weeks. And this was the first major league team to come to Florida for any kind of spring training. Fifteen years later, they came back to Jacksonville and spent the entire season in Jacksonville during their spring training season. And there were some successes and some it was sort of on and off. You get a few teams sort of trickle down and it really became a marketing campaign. So it was a marketing campaign between these local cities that wanted the tourism dollars and the teams that wanted these northern visitors who were here in the wintertime to watch a baseball game. So they wanted to find really the best match of the two. So Tampa got their own team, Orlando, mostly along the Gulf Coast, actually. But Jacksonville was very popular, St. Augustine. And in 1913, the Chicago Cubs came to Tampa. And this, I think, really marks the beginning of spring training in Florida, or Florida as the destination for these major league teams. Because after that, Chicago Cubs went on to win the pennant, to win the World Series. 
So then these teams started saying, oh, okay, we must attribute that to the fact that they were training in Florida because there was no other team at that time doing it. So it became very popular. And in the 1920s, especially during the land boom era of the 1920s, you had a lot of tourists coming to Florida and they wanted something to do. So these teams figured, hey, let's set up a sort of a mini season during the spring training and we'll have these kind of friendly games between other major league teams. And that really was the birth of spring training in Florida. In fact, some of the artifacts that we're looking at here from the Florida Historical Society archives, these are 8 by 10 photographs of Jack Russell Field, which was over in Clearwater. And this was built in 1955. And what we're looking at are the construction photos. So these are sort of the, the media photos that were given out for newspapers to run to say, hey, we've got this new field opened up. And this was actually built for the Philadelphia Phillies. And they played there from 1955 until 2003. This was a big part, really, of the community in Clearwater for many, many, many decades. What I also grabbed from the archive here are some photos from about the mid-1940s to the early 1950s, showing just various kind of baseball things. But it shows you how important baseball became, especially in the mid-20th century in Florida. Ben, a lot of baseball teams trained in Florida, but it took some time for Florida to get its own major league team, right? Yeah, that's right. It actually wasn't until 1993 when the Florida Marlins entered the 1993 season that Florida had their own team. And there were probably a lot of reasons for that. You know, there was that history of spring training here and this sort of transient nature of the people that are now moving and coming to Florida come from somewhere else. And often there is this very regional bias when it comes to baseball. It's true even today. For instance, if somebody you know grew up in New York and they were rooting for the Yankees, they were Yankees fans for life. So if they moved to Florida, they weren't going to suddenly start cheering for their local team, this Florida Marlins team. But they really did begin to kind of grow this following in Miami where they were based. And then a few years later in 1998, Tampa finally got their own team. And Tampa really was the center of baseball, Tampa and St. Pete, for many, many decades going back to the 19th century. And it took a very long time, a lot of lobbying, a lot of politicking, but they finally got their team, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, now known simply as the Rays, who were playing in, in St. Pete and continue to play in St. Pete. So we only still have two major league teams. And, and although baseball today, popularity may be waning a little bit, it's not where it was in, say, the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, it is still very, very popular. And unlike other professional sports that baseball is competing with in Florida, they play so many games a year that there are people going and there's opportunity to see some really great athleticism, you know, really anywhere in the country, but especially in Florida and especially during spring training when you can see all of these, you know, really the powerhouse teams coming out and for a relatively cheap price, you can watch them play these exhibition games just like Floridians were doing 100 years ago. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the baseball photos we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Several award-winning documentaries on Florida history topics have been produced at the University of Central Florida under the direction of Lisa Mills. Florida Frontiers contributor Holly Baker spoke with Lisa Mills. Dr. Lisa Mills is an associate professor of film at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, where she teaches documentary production, documentary history, screenwriting, and story theory. She works with students to produce documentary films, often focusing on social justice topics relating to Florida history. 
My background is in broadcast journalism, so academia is actually my second career. So I've always worked in television and film, telling stories, but I'm sort of a history buff as well. I'm not a history scholar. Uh, my degree is in political communication, but I actually think that that prepared me well to make these sorts of documentaries about the political aspects of history. I had always wanted to do more long-form, nonfiction storytelling. So a few years ago, uh, I was teaching in the radio, television, and broadcast journalism areas at UCF, and I made the switch over to the film program because in UCF's curriculum, that's where documentary lies, and I've really enjoyed working with the film students. The documentary films made by Dr. Mills and her students have won national and international awards and have shown at film festivals all over the world. One of those award-winning documentaries, called Filthy Dreamers, was released in 2014. Well, Filthy Dreamers is a 26-minute film produced in an honors class at the University of Central Florida. It's co-taught by myself in the film program and by Dr. Robert Casanello in the history program. This particular topic was very interesting to us because most of our films explore the intersection of politics with education in Florida. And this is about a period of history when you had fundamentalism really influencing state lawmakers. And at this particular time, we had a fundamentalist named L.A. Tatum who was trying to convince state lawmakers to pass a couple of laws that would have only affected white women at Florida State College for Women at that time. They wanted to pass a law against the teaching of evolution as fact, and they wanted to pass a law against any textbooks that they felt were unladylike for the women to read. In her film classes, Dr. Mills instills in her students the importance of fairly presenting a topic and sharing the voices of those who aren't often given a voice in mass media. What we try to do with the documentaries that we make is make sure they're accurate and that they're fair. We are telling the story, Filthy Dreamers, from the point of view of the women who were at Florida State College for Women in 1928. What they faced, what they believed, how they fought this particular issue, the challenge to their academic freedom. Dr. Lisa Mills, Dr. Robert Casanello, and their students have created several thought-provoking Florida documentaries that confront issues concerning race, education, and equality. The Committee, released in 2012, is an Emmy Award-winning documentary film about the Florida Legislative Investigation Committee, known as the Johns Committee, that existed between 1956 and 1964. Led by Chairman Charlie Johns, their aim was to root out homosexuals from state universities in Florida. The committee fired or expelled more than 200 suspected gay and lesbian teachers and students. Another film, Marching Forward, premiered at the Florida Film Festival in 2019. Marching Forward tells the story of the all-black marching band at Orlando's segregated Jones High School and their invitation to perform at the 1964 New York World's Fair, along with the all-white marching band from nearby Edgewater High School. In this golden age of documentaries, filmmakers like Dr. Mills and her students can now reach a much larger audience. Documentary films are more accessible today than they've ever been, thanks to streaming platforms like Netflix, YouTube, and Hulu. Dr. Lisa Mills Documentary remains a sort of alternative media for Americans who care deeply about these issues and want a lot more information. 
So they used to have to go to film festivals and art house theaters to see these documentaries. But nowadays we have cable, we have streaming. So we're in really a new golden age of documentary because these people who have subscriptions to these streaming services can see the excellent work that documentary filmmakers are doing on these social justice and investigative topics. To learn more about the documentary films of Dr. Mills and her students, go to lisamillsfilms.com. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can find lots of additional content on the web at myfloridahistory.org and on our Facebook pages. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Please continue to stay safe and healthy. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida, it's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.